Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number five of the New School Video Podcast. It's Candice, and in this episode, I co-host with Meg as we talk to Seb Dovey, an advisory board member of FICOM. So Seb is a pretty cool dude because not only is he on the advisory board of FICOM, but he serves as a member on boards of directors of all kinds of financial services firms across the globe. He was a co-founding partner along with his wife, Kath, of Scorpio Partnership in 1998. They were later bought out by Aon. I think I'm saying that right. They were focused as a research and insights and management consultancy firm on where the industry was going and what the ultra high net worth client actually wants. In this episode, he talks about where the industry is going. We ask him about a video that we found of him in 2006, where he was talking about the need to go digital, to use social media to grow, and the types of things that probably were a little bit wild at the time. He shares what his experience was like, the surprising insights that they discovered, and where he believes the industry is headed for the future. You don't want to miss it. So Seb, I did some online stalking. I told you that I did. But I, what I was talking to Meg about when we were prepping for your interview was I found a YouTube video from you that you were in from like 2012, okay? And in, it's 2020 right now. And in 2012, you were at a conference and you were talking about a human first approach to financial services. You were talking about how the more high net worth a client becomes, the more digital they become. And you were also talking about how social media was going to be one of the top three ways for firms to grow. And so that was in 2012. And I said to Meg, I was like, Seb was like, ladies, these things you've been talking about, I've been talking about them for 10 years. <laughs> What was that like so long ago to already have seen that? What was the response? And it kind of, at that point, I would imagine, of course, because even now, was very groundbreaking. Uh, what was it like? I'm not sure. I, I suppose, look, I mean, I think the curse, when you're in a, a business, uh, the business that we had was a research and consultancy business uh, it spent its time anthropologically understanding the behaviors of very wealthy people we had the privilege of being able to look at the responses and understand what the future looked like what we learned was that when you tell people of a future it's quite difficult for them when they're dealing with the present uh, and what we also learned was that our visions of the future were often many years ahead um, and so well now we know i mean at least 12 years ahead although uh, you know, a sense of, I think um, I was doing that type of presentation by early 2006, seven. Um, and, uh, but the point behind it all was how did I feel at times pretty frustrated because if, if people had moved then, how fast they're moving now, goodness me. And a few did. Um, 
I suppose the other challenge is that, that uh, I did feel often like a lone voice globally. Uh, there are very, very few people talking about that type of, uh, um, you know, narrative and, um, you know, thinking about the ways in which to address it. Uh, most of the time I'd make those sort of speeches and people would just glaze over or say that they, you know, they just simply didn't believe it was possible that it, uh, wealthy people would double click um, or, you know, wealthy people would use the internet in different ways. Wealthy people would want to try before you buy. And, you know, look at it now. I mean, you know, Michael Kitsi is now being a sort of goddess about this area. Well, God, I suppose, not goddess, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think, I think there's many people that now talk about it and, and I, I don't mind. I actually got a thrill out of, um, you know, being a purist and being quite early in the process. And, and we, 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 we did well out of that. I think that today people, advisors, wealth managers would still tell you the same thing that you probably heard back in 2006. I think the majority would say yeah. high net worth, ultra high net worth clients. I'm never going to connect with them on social media. It's all about the relationship. It's about how you get into the relationship from a trusted source only. So while I agree with you that, you know, you have the, the, privilege of sort of being ahead of the game and being that lone voice so many years ago and now there's many more voices. I still think that we have so far to go. And I think that this industry also responds really well to data. And yeah. I know that your business that you started with your wife, Kath, Scorpio Partnership, that you eventually sold to Aon, was really about, you worked with some of the largest global wealth managers and financial institutions to help them get into the mind of the ultra high net worth. So when you're talking in 2006 about this human connection and the need to be digital and all of these things, it was backed by data, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, I guess it goes way, way back. So we set the company up in 1998, um, so almost pre-digital, so an analog environment. And at the time, it was even more basic. We were just saying, look, how can you make decisions on, you know, big commercial decisions of, you know, banks that we worked with around the world based on absolutely no information? And their response was, uh, well, we don't really need the information because we know what the customers want. I mean, it was crazy. It was a really, really peculiar sort of narrative. And I thought it was crazy. And I was a relatively, you know, young, um, you know, just inexperienced individual. And so was my wife, Kath. And we just thought, well, I know what, we'll go out and ask people and we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And we started to do that just on a very, very, um, so what now seems quite crude, but just interview basis. Having been journalists, it wasn't a difficult thing for us to do, to have conversations. Our, our job, our skill, the skill of all the team that worked for us wasn't to be the, the people in the front of the screen, but the people to be behind the screen and just get people to talk. So it's kind of weird doing this this now. But, um, but, the, but what you learned from that then led to what we started to talk about very aggressively from the early 2000s, which was evidence-based decision-making, um, which again, seems logical now in financial services. I mean, it was logical before, by the way, in other industries, it's just not in financial services. Um, and we're only still probably at the foothills of how we use data to make commercial decisions. And those commercial decisions will affect how we communicate, how we develop, how we put new products in the market and all, all those things. So it's, it's, it's very exciting to still you know, realize I'm not out of date. Um, uh, but uh, it's also a little bit frustrating that, uh, you know, I, I think we can do a lot more, um, you know, as a consumer of financial services uh, uh, than, than what, we what we are doing. But, you know, it's, I guess that's the same in every sector. I know we want to loop back around to the idea of, you know, commercial. So we're going to come back around to that. But I want to stay on your time at Scorpio Partnership really fast. What was 
and I know you did so, like the research and insights that were coming out of Scorpio were just incredible. And like I said, you worked with some of the biggest global financial institutions. Do you remember one specific study that Scorpio did that just completely surprised that the results, the outcomes, the insights just completely surprised you? You thought, wow, like that was not at all what I was expecting to get out of this. So there was a program of research. I think it might be what you saw on that YouTube uh, video, Candice, um, which was a program which we invented and then delivered for many years called Future Wealth. So that was a program of understanding the needs of consumers year in, year out. And um, one, I was very proud of that as, a, as an idea and how we executed it. But two was that, that the thing that came out that I suppose – yeah, it did surprise us. I, I think we, you know, when you're a question questionnaire, uh, you sort of know your, what you expect the answers to be. Um, but what we found was we were able to correlate very aggressively, very actively, the importance that clients associated in client experience uh, to how they chose financial services firms and how they compared financial services industry to you know the retail sector, the aviation sector, and, and other brands. So. The power of the brand, the power of the experience, really, we now had huge amounts of evidence, huge in relative terms, uh, given where we were, uh, to say to whether it was UBS or Wells Fargo or uh, an IRA in the US, you know, you need to understand that your brand is your sales force. And you need to understand that your customer buys you on the experience. Um, you need to understand that your investment outcomes, your investment solutions, super important, super valuable are actually, dare I say it, secondary in the buying alchemy. And now you can imagine how well that went down um, uh, for many years. <laughs> but uh, but it's a, it's a, it was an ideology. It was the right one. It is the right one. You can see it being reflected in the way businesses develop and perform now. Why does financial services have such a tough time believing that a human-centered approach is actually what connects with high net worth clients, clients across the spectrum, and that actually fuels the growth in their firms. I, th I think, in a way, I don't know if they have a tough time with the phrase. I think they're quite—they're actually very relaxed about saying we're a client-centric business. What they have a tough time with is knowing how to do it, um, you know, from an execution perspective. And there's there's a part of that which would be that a lot of the people that run the businesses are very historically sales-oriented nothing wrong with that but they'll come from the investment management gene pool and have built portfolio of management solutions and clients and and then one day they become the leader of the business and you know they have to look at things that they probably not considered before like marketing and communication and you know all, all the other pieces of running a very good scalable company and i think i think they've struggled with that i think they've struggled with the disciplines and skills that are needed to run what is essentially a consumer business not an investment business and those were the kind of observations and cases that we were making worldwide, whether it was in Thailand or, you know, Tennessee, uh, for, for argument's sake. And, and, I, and I think we're still in that today. There are now, the good news is that in the leadership cohort of most wealth firms, there is more evidence that I can see of a more consumer-oriented skill set uh, running consumer businesses rather than just investments. And, I, and one thing that people misunderstand about comments that are made by me or maybe by others is, that I'm being dismissive about the investment management. I'm not. I, I, it's certainly not the case. It's just the scale of responsibility of growing companies in this area has grown from just investments to running a much wider uh, suite of, uh, of importance. And, you know, I'll come on to probably to that a bit later on.
So I think that's like very true, but I think what I was trying to get at, Seb, maybe is like, where does authenticity and vulnerability play into this? Well, um, it's, you know, I think authenticity has been there. Uh, you know, the investment advisor or the RIA, particularly those that were involved with the, with the planning side of it, you know, they would get into the kind of the guts, uh, the emotional EQ of a relationship with a client. And they really know that. I mean, there was a lot of authenticity in the connection between the clients, but it was very binary in my view um, between the advisor and the client, which was, I have an investment service that I need to sell because that's how I'm compensated, uh, which is fine. Uh, but I'm only going to listen to the investment piece. I'm going to listen to the rest of the narrative, but it's going to be to solve an investment investment outcome. And what I think authenticity has, has, has broadened into is clients share today and have today much, much more information. So we're in an information management business and a consumer business of which investment services is a sort of subset uh, that 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 is not a popular phrase to to say, but I will rather rather like the YouTube video. Maybe this will be the one. Uh, but to sort of eight years ago, but eight years from now, I, I suspect people will be going. You know what? It really is right now is an investment in management is not an inf information management business. Uh, hopefully by then, you know, we'll uh, you know we'll all be happy. But uh, I, I can imagine that's going to be what people will say. Let me clearly catalog this so that we can come back to it in, in eight years' time and see. <laughs> I have lots of things that I write and then I put in sealed envelopes and I'll put things like to be opened in nine years time or 10 years time. Occasionally, you know, I look at them and go, oh, okay. Oh, really? Was I thinking that then? <laughs> <laughs> you Just you so do I that for real? You do that for real? No, envelopes in your house. I used to really like when I was little, but I never received one. But the idea of the message in a bottle, I thought that was extraordinary. Uh, you know, this idea that you could write one thing in one time and then see it later and then just be fascinated by either the prescience or the ignorance. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that, that's just me, maybe. Do you have any examples of clients that you worked with well, during your time at Scorpio or just businesses that you consult with or follow now that you think are getting getting it right from the, you know, it's a consumer business. This is the information age. Have you seen any examples out there where you look at the business and the brand and you think, yeah, they got it. Um, in financial services uh, specifically uh, with, with, you know, the sort of subset of wealth, uh, and this may be embarrassed, embarrassed Candace, but we, we know now, but for probably since about, 2012 actually i used to point out to what was essentially a very small company uh and i'd be you know he never really understood knew or understood that i was doing this but i'd be in say singapore and say guys the thing that you need the company you need to look at and every time i would say would be united capital and now the reason i was looking at them and we worked with i mean one of my largest accounts was sei so i spent a lot of time with sei and we were obviously very familiar with united capital they were you know looking at them as a provider the the um the reason i was interested was it wasn't so much the underlying execution of the investment solutions. It was the narrative. It was about the narrative of communicating with clients. And it was about the, there was a confidence, maybe later it became a bit of a swagger, but certainly a confidence around, you know, trusting that the client could, you know, play around with stuff, could, could, could you know, be expressive in the financial solutions and, and test and experiment and give feedback. 
Whereas everywhere else I saw it, um, you know, you it was quite a rigid experience, you know, and you know for good reasons maybe. But the the industry is very very nervous about letting the customer, um, you know, take charge uh, as much. So that was one example. Another example I'll just give to you briefly, and, and they are the largest global firm in the world for wealth management was UBS. Um, because they understood brand much earlier. They understood the execution of the, of the financial planning process. Um, it was a joy to work with them and a whole range of different things over the years. Uh, and you could just see it in the numbers, but you could see it also in the client feedback. You know, they were big, but they were, they were, they are very, very good. Different in different markets, of course, but, uh, but good. So those are two examples, UC and uh, UBS. You know, I was super excited to work at United Capital when I went to work there. And I don't think people actually know this, but um, the way I was hired is I went in to go speak. I was working at Mercer Advisors and I had this very cool COO. And he said to me after his time, he said, Candace, go interview, go see what's out there. We can create a position for you. Tell us what you want to do. But if you go check out what else is out there. So I said, okay. And I went to United Capital and I'd seen a video of Joe and I couldn't quite discern his accent. And I went into HR and they said, where are you from? Because I looked at my resume and I said, Zimbabwe. And they said, oh gosh, our CEO is from Zimbabwe. So I said, really? And they said, yeah. They said, you have to meet him. So I said, okay. And we literally stormed his office. He was in the middle of a meeting. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this is going to go very well or very badly. And after a series of 10 questions, he said, get her in on Monday. And I started and I didn't have a job description. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was in for, quite truthfully. But I've never worked at a firm where they do so much in a quarter because everything's so rapid speed. But I, you know, to Joe's credit and to everyone else's credit, I think the difference that they had was we were all bought into changing the industry changing the way clients think and feel about money. And I think that's a fundamental point that we are all driving when we're working with our clients. Like, what is your why? How do you connect in the line from that? Because once you've got that, everything is kind of secondary. It just flows. And I think things like being the expert and like not taking any feedback in that client advisor relationship, like, just disappear because what you realize is you're there of service, which I think was not traditionally kind of the relationship. It's a much more collaborative of service relationship. And it's kind of like healthcare. Now you don't go to the doctor and just listen. You're now an advocate for yourself in the healthcare dynamic. So mm -hmm. I think it's just such a beautiful example. And I think what it lends itself to is there's a certain amount of vulnerability that you have to have in that space of being like, I don't know all the answers. How could I for you? Because it's your life. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And I think it's, uh, you know, the, what I would love to see in uh, the, this decade is the, the, the industry become more trusting of the client. Um, you know, not the, the client doesn't quite know what they need and we're here to tell them. And, and, you know, there is, there's certainly that, but also be trusting of the client to to want to want to experiment with the service, you know, using it in a complex way, but sort of to get them to engage with this this topic. Um, and you know, I, I you know, I, I can sort of imagine the meeting that you had with 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 Joe, and and I, and just because that just also cascades into the expression of the business. It's like if we can see something that's 
you know, smart and, and that it's going to help us to do better. Let's start tomorrow. And that, that was refreshing. It's not, let's, let's find a committee and wait for seven years. Um, yeah. I mean, that's where the innovation comes from. I mean, talking about that. We hired you. I just want to put that one in there. That's, that's why we hired you. Just make that very clear. Kind of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Seb, I always think it's such a delight. I have the privilege of having a conversation with you twice a month and it really is the highlight, uh, a highlight of my life. But you've done so much in your career, and I think that you're very humble about it. You also like to not really, because you've got such big brains and like such different, you know, ideas that are so innovative, you don't really talk about yourself. So Meg and I were like thinking about it before, and we were like, we want Seb to share things. And I think you did share one story, but I'd love for you to share it. Like the most vulnerable moment that you've had in your career. <laughs> Firstly, I don't think anybody is that interested, but it's very, very kind of you. Um, but, but I, I, I mean, in me, that's it. The interested general maybe a different matter. They always used to like to have the information that we had um, uh, built uh, and the process we had. Um, the most vulnerable for me, I was trying to say to when we were talking before the the, the session, um, was um, it was at the very beginning. Um, you know, when I I came back to. Uh, to my parents and to my mother and I just said, hey, you know, I think uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a business. Um, I'm going to go and do that. Um, and uh, I, I couldn't really finish the sentence, which because it was an extended sentence, because she burst into tears and they were tears of disappointment, basically. She was sort of, I think her sentence was, why couldn't we join Goldman Sachs and have a proper career? Um, you know, and she was just looking backward and saying, you know, we we put a lot of effort and you know you have to and being sort of someone uh, educated and so forth and now you're going to go and become this crazy thing called a business owner or now it's very trendy obviously if you say to your parents i'm going to become an entrepreneur they they actually walk themselves to goldman sachs to open an account in anticipation uh, for all the the share value you're going to get um uh, so so that was pretty hard because then i finished the sentence which said i'm also going to do it with my my, what I suspect is going to become my life partner. Uh, and, uh, you know, then she cried even louder. Um, she was like, oh, my God, you're going to just destroy everything, not just your own life, but the life of your partner as well. What's her name? Um, <laughs> so, 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 yeah, that's, uh, that's, I don't know if that's vulnerable, but it was certainly entertaining. But what it did do, it did one thing as a business owner, which I often say when I do classes on, on, on you know, running companies and so forth, um, is it instituted, instilled in me a conviction to be successful. You have to somewhere in your, you have to find a kind of an inner core that goes, this is why I'm doing this. And I suspect many people, this, I want to prove my parents wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's the litmus test for a lot of the decision-making that happened afterwards. So, it, it, you know, maybe she was being, maybe she was playing me. Who knows? I, you know, she's passed away now, but, but so you never know. I, I love that story because if I think about the relationship that you and I have as the advisory board member at FICOM and as a female business owner, I face a lot of vulnerability and in my day-to-day -day and in how I approach my career. And one of the elements of our relationship that has been so empowering for me and for FICOM is that you really help me overcome fear and anxiety and face my vulnerabilities, but face them from a position of power and a position of confidence. That's just really, really empowering. And I know that when you 
sold you and Kath sold Scorpio partnership to Aeon and then you had you stayed on for I think it was five years and then I, I met you towards the tail end of that and we were at a conference and you mentioned to me very casually when I asked what was going to be next for you and you said you know my wife and I would really like to support businesses that we believe in and we'd actually really like to support you know female business owners and I was like Hello. I raised my hand and you're very kind to continue the conversation with me. And so I, it, it to me feels just like very natural. It's just Seb. That's how you are. But tell me a little bit about from your side, like for the boards that you're on, I know that you are on the board of at least two other two husband and wife teams. I'm I'm yep. not a husband and wife team here. Scott would not enjoy working with me. <laughs> But um, I know that you have F2 and Rydell strategy, and, and I think your commitment to, to women business owners is just super cool. Like, what's that look like? What does vulnerability look like from your seat when you're working with businesses like mine? Well, well, I guess it, the reason we do we do, I say we, and obviously I would speak uh, on, as one of the my 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 wife Kath as well is. So we we found setting up a business as a partnership and setting up a business as a married partnership and, and, and the the industry of financial services simply can't compute that you're you're almost odd before you even speak and and so I have some empathy with if you take that a bit further women coming into financial services you're, before you even do anything you're you're I'm trying to say it's a bit hard to just say you're at a disadvantage it's not not always the case it's just you're the odd one out, and and I guess I've I've had a very odd one out upbringing, odd one out sort of education, odd one out saying this. I've I've always been in that space, I've, and you know to navigate the being the different one is is uh, is something that I understand. I express that confidence and comfort to other people. So that's that's sort of the emotional expression. The other side of it is is that we seventy percent of the companies that we back are female founded companies um, around around the sectors, and the reason is is because there's this there's this there's a value there there's a there's an important role for companies having a more diverse leadership structure husbands and wives females only siblings you know and there's a space and it's almost it's actually what i would really like it to be is that they will be irrelevant in the future we won't be talking about whether it's female only or otherwise we're just talking about good businesses um but i know how to find good businesses through that filter i've always that's that's the filter i understand and it also turns out to be the filter that needs a lot of, you know, good support, kind support, um, not always just cash support, just support. Um, but that's it's a philosophy. It's not out to, you know, make make sort of massive fortunes. It's just out to make people make a good business. That That's that's what I like. It comes back to the alchemy piece. What does the future hold, Seb, as you think about it and like where financial services is going? Um, I need to find my white cat. So, that need to, <laughs> right. so think about if this was the letter that you're writing to put in one of your envelopes, what have you yeah. put in there? <laughs> well, I think, I think I've given a little hint of that for the industry, which I think the future holds for our wealth industry is that firm wealth firms will recognize that they're information management businesses and they'll organize themselves accordingly. And they'll organize themselves. What I mean by that is that they will become commercially successful as information management companies, of which investments are are an output. Um, I know that most of the time when I say that, people have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, and I'm quite comfortable with that. I've pretty much 
said things that people don't understand for, for, for decades. So, but it seems to work for me, so that's fine. Um, so that's one. Um, I think another that you'll find as the future holds is that we will find that there will be more sort of empowered businesses. That's a trendy word right now, but businesses that have a more um, representative leadership structure, uh, more kind of balanced in terms of whether it's by gender, creed, ethnicity, sexuality, it doesn't matter. And it's, they're normal, they should be irrelevant, but I think you'll see that that will be, will get through that and it'll just be just differently run businesses. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that. I probably won't live long enough to see it, um, but I think it, it, will, it will come. And so those are two things that I have actually written down. Um, uh, the one that I have yet to write down, but I sort of imagine is the future does hold that eventually uh, Tottenham Hotspur will win um, the Premier League. Um, but that's an almost impossibility. So I, I, I might as well just say it and not bother to write it. But, you better go write that down. Um, that's a football and reference. And I'm original football, not, not this stupid American stuff. You know. <laughs> Viacom is a marketing and PR firm, and we've got advisor mm -hmm. education. And I think we talk about the new school approach a lot, right? Being more human, being more digital, being using marketing to drive commercial success. And we've had a lot of conversations about that. Can you talk a little bit about how you see firms, but specifically marketing, and marketing functions moving away from the CMO role to the chief commercial officer role and what that means. Uh, and this is, uh, I guess, this is a really a central issue to me um, because I think if you, again, sort of think about it a little bit historically, the, the role of the CMO in a wealth business has often been as a sort of second class uh, leadership member. Uh, and, um, you know, usually they were the, the ninth item on a 10 item agenda uh, at the board meeting. Um, and, and it was it was sort of the accidental piece. And that's a complete mistake. I mean, I, I, like I said, when, and Megan asked the question, the evidence showed how important brand was, how important client experience was. Uh, you know, those are those are in the wheelhouse of, of marketing. Um, fast forward from 2010 to 2020, um, we're also beginning to recognize the role of marketing in delivering commercial outcomes. You know, the, the, the drivers of value in a relationship, the reasons why people pay. And I, I think that I know, actually, you'll start to see the emergence of the CMO having much more direct accountability on commercial consequence, commercial outcome. And so, you know, and that's very powerful, you know, because there's more data to track the efforts of the investments that are made. There's more consequence of the efforts and the client experience that lead to outcomes. This isn't new. I've spent most of my time just studying other industries. If you go to the, you know, kind of the FMCG, fast moving consumer goods markets, uh, it's just a simple sort of sector. Uh, the CCO is now a very present role um, in global businesses and is, uh, you know, often originates from a CMO territory. Um, and often, by the way, the CCO becomes the CEO, uh, you know. So I have I, already started to see some chief commercial officers uh, arrive as a role function within wealth management in the US, in Europe, uh, but it's it's still, uh, you know, one or two, uh, not 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 across, across the board. But I would um, be comfortable uh, writing in an unsealed envelope that by 2025, uh, the CCO role will be the, the hot role uh, in the industry. Uh, for a lot of a lot of reasons, and probably, you know, we you, you'll, you'll find better people than me to tell you about. But the bottom line is that every action that you take in a business, and that's speaking as a business owner, founder, 
every action you take has to have a commercial consequence. And um, I think sometimes in bigger wealth firms, large employed firms, people sort of lose sight of that. And it's the job of the chief commercial officer to just remind everyone going, everything we do has to result in a commercial return. Everything. It doesn't matter. You can still be philanthropic, but there has to be a commercial reason. Otherwise, as, as my first boss said, you know, you're, you're not in a business, you're in a charity. So we're so aligned with that in the, and you know, because of the conversations that we have regularly. And when we talk about new school, we talk about, you know, leading with authenticity and really targeting your focus and driving to commercial success. And you're always so generous to listen to Candace and I, when we've got this passion and these ideas that we're just bursting with. What is, what does new school mean to you, Seb? So new school to me means that, uh, at, the advisors, the, 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 you know, the, the historical epicenter, the crucible of where value transfer happened, you know, those, those client meetings, um, is uh, modernizing and understanding to use different forms of engagement to connect with clients. And obviously, New School is showing us just not just to do it, how the technology helps and how the, the medium can be used to generate new relationships. But it's more than that. It's also showing to the advisors, I, I can talk differently. I can connect differently. I can engage differently. And, and I think that that's actually the first building block, right, for the for new school. It's it's just teaching people the confidence to express themselves and be, you know, commercial online, um, which I suppose if you think about it, it sounds a bit crude, but but you know what I mean. It's uh, uh, but but there's a there's a piece beyond that, which is I think if you step out of just the one to ones, I would expect that the industry will begin to realize that actually relationship from a client perspective isn't always just the, in the dialogue with you on screen. I have a relationship with Merrill Lynch, but I, I can't name the people I deal with. I have a relationship with the brand, the, the screen, uh, the, the clicks, you know, and it communicates to me through its marketing, you know, who, you know, people that might not know, but just the expression of the business. It's the same way as I have a relationship with Amazon. I'll talk about Amazon in the first person, uh, you know, and, 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 or third person, sorry, and you go, or, you know, he did this for me. It's like, he doesn't exist. exist. There's a body of people behind it. So I think we're beginning to understand in wealth management that we can have an institutionalized relationship. And that to me is where new school will go. I believe firmly that the industry is a good industry that does amazing things for amazing people. Um, but it can be a great industry if it also understands that communication and, and, and contact and dialogue are not just nice to have but they're commercially central to everything that we do um, and that's not just to argue the case for FICOM it's been the case that I've argued for 25 years um, and I think the industry's come for it and it's been the case that Megan's argued for at least 20 years um, you know it's not new but it's becoming more of a tribe than it was it used to be we're all there were sort of various nomads around the world um, who, who would talk about this, and it was no mad. <laughs> so we were often described as pretty crazy. But but no, I think now we're in a good place. Um, but I realize that I'm rambling, and maybe by now everyone's clicked off, so that's okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. For everyone that's listening, if you enjoyed this uh, episode, please uh, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate that. Share it with anyone that you think would get some value out of it. And again, Seb, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me.